So today we're continuing in our visitation sermon series, and what we're doing is that we're looking at various encounters that God has with his people throughout the biblical story. And today we are uh, coming to a text in Matthew chapter 17. This is called the transfiguration of Jesus. And here we see um, an encounter between God and his son Jesus. We see an encounter between God and the disciples, and, and therefore we learn there's something in this text where we learn what it looks like to meet God and know God. And that's actually one of the, the goals that we have for this entire sermon series is we're trying to answer the question, what does it look like for us to know God? So let's uh, look at Matthew 17, uh, the verses 1 through, through 8. And you can follow along on the words projected on the wall or in your worship guide. So let's give our careful attention to God's word. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray one more time together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for, for the word that you speak to us. We ask that as in this time that we would focus on you, that we would set our eyes on you, that we would listen to you, and that your spirit would be at work in our hearts as we hear your word. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So recently a friend told me about someone in his church and this person, uh, his name was Sean. And Sean, for all his life, has been a religious person. He grew up in the church. He even attended a Christian college for a season. And he was an addict. He, and as he was an addict, uh, he tried to change, but he couldn't. And so he actually uh, began to hate himself. And he was greatly ashamed of, of his actions. And he leaned into various accountability structures. He leaned into his friends and his family. And his friends uh, put on interventions. His church pursued him in discipline. He tried all of these external remedies and accountability strategies that were there to help him change. And as uh, my friend was telling this story, I was reminded of, of another author by the name of Charlie Peacock who, who told his story about when he was 25, he started going to AA because he was addicted to drugs and alcohol. And as he was dove into AA, he was told that he had to give his life over to a higher power. Because this, if you did not do this, if you did not turn your life over to a higher power, then you would not change. Your life would never turn around. You would never get sober. And so Charlie Peacock wrote this about his stage of life. This is the way he wrote. While no one can say for sure what God was affecting in my life at the beginning of my sobriety, one thing is certain. I did not pray 
to the God of the Bible out of love for him, his word, or his agenda. I prayed out of desperation and self-preservation, betting that if the God of the Bible did exist, he would be the necessary positive fix to counteract the negative influences that alcohol and drugs had become. Since all my attempts to fix myself had been unsuccessful, I had nothing to lose and everything to gain by giving the God of the Bible a chance at doing what I could not do for myself. I liked the idea of talking to God. And this is actually where Charlie pinpoints, he pinpoints the, uh, the problem that we have when we try to change without God. This is what he says. But what I did not understand is that I was having a one-sided conversation with God. I was talking to him, but he was not talking to me. I gave him the seat of power in my life, but I did not give him a tongue with which to speak. I had created a speechless God. I was a desperate man, interested in practical results, and completely uninterested in following Jesus. So Charlie here, in his honesty, reveals something about our lives. He reveals something about our brokenness. But the truth is, we don't have a problem with God. Because we look around the world, we see people talking about God. God is actually very popular. God is very popular. We don't have a problem with God. What we have a problem with is God speaking to us. We have a problem when God speaks to us. We, because we know that he is our creator. He's the one who upholds the universe in his hands. And he has the right then to speak to our lives. That if he is the God of, of if he's the creator of all things, then he's the one who made us. And he has a, a right to, to say how we should live. And that's what we don't like. Because we know that in our hearts, because our hearts are, tr- are really broken. And the sad reality is that when we don't listen to God, we cannot grow. When we don't listen to God, we cannot change in a positive way. And so the, the, the point, the idea of this text and this sermon that I really want to think about today is this. The Christian life is a listening life. The Christian life is a listening life where we as followers of Jesus listen to him. And so last week, if you were with us, uh, I, I, we looked at the baptism of Jesus. And there are some similarities between uh, that encounter with God and the encounter we're looking at today. And in, in Jesus' baptism, it's all about his identity. And, the, and we see God showing up and we hear a voice from heaven saying, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. That's what we see and that's what we looked at in the baptism of Jesus. And today we see a similar thing where a cloud descends upon Jesus and we hear this voice, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, listen to him. See, this text, just like the whole baptism text, this text and this transfiguration narrative is all about Jesus' identity. They are fundamentally, those two accounts are about the same thing, but they have very different lessons and relevance for our lives and the thing that the similarity where God the voice says this is my son in whom I'm well pleased that is one reason that claim is one reason why the Jewish leaders sought to kill Jesus because uh, this is John 5 the one that like there are several reasons why the, the religious leaders sought to kill Jesus 
Uh, one is that he was healing on the Sabbath uh, and threatening the status quo, but he was also calling himself the Son of God. He was declaring equality with God. So Jesus, this entire statement, uh, this is my son, that statement, that claim is that Jesus is God. And so in this text that we see Jesus' identity, we see how he is God in a variety of ways. And I want to walk through this text in verses 2 and 3 just to look at some of the details because these details actually reinforce this claim, this statement that Jesus is God. And so this is the transfiguration of Jesus. We see this word in verse 2, and he was transfigured before him. Now, that is a weird word. I only use that word when it comes to this story, when Jesus is transfigured. But if you look it up, you see that transfiguration means that you are, uh, that there's a change, that you're, you are transformed. It comes from the Greek word metamorphosis, which is a word we actually use much more commonly than transfiguration. We use it to describe caterpillars transforming into butterflies, metamorphosis, I think. Someone, biologist can tell me if I'm right or wrong. Thank you. And, but here, like, we see Jesus change. We see Jesus transformed in, in a beautiful way. This moment, this transfiguration, uh, this moment where Jesus is transformed, we, we get a picture of Jesus being exalted. We see a picture of the type of communion Jesus enjoyed with God before he became human. We see the fact that Jesus is actually the eternal Son of God here. And so Jesus is uh, the incarnation of God the Son. And in our call to worship, we, re- we read this from the Apostle John. That We read this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, John there is referring to Jesus. See, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Fully God and fully man. He is the one through whom all things were made, and he sustains the entire universe in his hand. And so these disciples, Peter, James, and John, are with Jesus. These are, these are his best friends. And these disciples are following Jesus for one reason or another. And just earlier... In Matthew 16, there's a conversation that uh, Jesus has with his disciples. And he says to, Pe- he says to them, who, who do people say I am? And so Peter says, well, some say you're Elijah. Others say you're John the Baptist. And so they're having a little back and forth conversation about that. And then Jesus says to Peter, forget what they say. Who do you say I am? And then Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And with that remarkable confession, Jesus is saying, says to him, you're right. That is true. Don't tell anyone else right, until, until I die upon the cross and do, and, and do my thing. And so we see that remarkable confession. And so in this moment, we're seeing Jesus glorified. Peter, James, and John get this front row seat to Jesus being recognized by God, saying, this is the one who's going to accomplish my purposes in this world. And so we continue to see for other details here that, re- that reveal to us the type of communion that Jesus had with God. So like in verse 2, his face shone like the sun, his clothes became, br- became white as light. 
And again, throughout the whole story of Scripture, that if you had an encounter with God like, in Mo- like Moses did, your face was shown very brightly, and people had to hide their faces from, from Moses. And so we see other, like these type of details in the story that just go to show that Jesus enjoys remarkable communion with God. And so in verse 3, we see that there appeared to them Moses and Elijah. So Jesus is there with Moses and Elijah. And these two individuals are perhaps the, the most significant leaders within the entire Old Testament. Moses is the one who led God's people out of Egypt, out of slavery. He's the one who wrote the books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He wrote the entire law. And then here's Elijah, who uh, is really representative of the entire prophetic literature throughout the, the entire uh, throughout the entire Old Testament. And so by standing with Jesus, they are confirming Old Testament prophecies that this man is God the Son. And, and later on, like this is Luke 24, like the disciples missed the fact that every story in God's Word spoke about Jesus. The disciples missed that. And so in Luke 24, Jesus appears after his resurrection to his two disciples and he walks with them on the road to Emmaus. And in Luke 24, 27, we we read that he began with Moses and the entire prophets pointing them to how these stories spoke about him. And so what we see right here is that this is a moment that Peter, James, and John see that the entire story of God, the entire story of Israel leads up to this man, Jesus. It's about this man, Jesus, right here. And so in this moment, once again, we're seeing this pre- uh, preview of Jesus being lifted up, exalted, and glorified by God, that he's being recognized by, by God. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. We're seeing that. But as we see, th- see Jesus' exaltation here, there are so many details in this story that, are, that connect the dots to us, that connect the dots for us to his death upon the cross. Just consider some of these. This is what one commentator said. Here on the mountain, mountain is transfiguration. A hill will be his crucifixion. Here on the mountain, Jesus is revealed in his glory. There on a hill outside Jerusalem is Jesus revealed in shame. Here on the mountain, his clothes are shining bright. There they have been stripped off and soldiers gamble for them. Here he is flanked by Elijah and Moses. There he is flanked by two criminals. Here a bright cloud overshadows the the scene, and there darkness comes upon the land. Here Peter says, hey, this is wonderful. Let me build a house for us. And there he denies that he didn't even know Jesus. Here is a voice from God saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And there a pagan Roman soldier says, surely this man was the son of God. See, Matthew is telling this story in such a way where we can we see why Jesus is exalted. He is the Son of God who came to take away the sins of the world. That Jesus is the Son of God who came to die upon the cross for your sins. That is how Jesus is exalted. And so Jesus' identity here is that he is the Son of God, and yet Peter misunderstands it. Even though Peter says in Matthew 6, 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he really, really misunderstands it. And so as we think about Peter's misunderstanding now, 
Peter is actually the disciple I can relate to. He is pretty dense, and I'm a dense person. And when Jesus is being really clear, Peter is still dense. And again, so Matthew 16, Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're right, Peter. Good job. The next scene, and I mean the next scene, Jesus is talking about how he has to go to Jerusalem, how he has to die upon the cross, and Peter pulls him aside and says, Jesus, that's never going to happen. You should really stop talking like that. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. You are only interested in yourself right now. You're not interested in the ways of God. You're not interested in in what God's doing in this world. Get behind me, Satan. And so Peter is... Peter, and so he comes into this text, and like he just heard Jesus saying, I need to die upon the cross. He's heard Jesus rebuke him, and here he says, let me build a house for us. Let me, let me make three booths for each of you. And so what Peter is doing here is that Peter is actually doing one of two things. Peter is either saying, on one hand, He's saying something like this, like, hey, let's make a house so, like, all of us, all six of us can, like, stay here right now. Like, you, Elijah, Moses, the three of us, let's all stay here together. Like, let's never go back down the mountain. Or the other thing that he's saying is that, let me make a shrine, one for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. Let's just make a shrine and, like, commemorate and memorialize this moment so that, like, it's never forgotten. And so God comes and speaks, says, this is my son. The cloud descends upon, uh, upon them, and the voice is so immediate. It's so abrupt. It's a rebuke. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. But like going back to Peter, Peter profoundly misunderstood Jesus, but he also really misunderstood the moment. And like this is where we can actually use the term that Christians often use, a uh, mountaintop experience, really well. And if that's a new word to you, really what a mountaintop experience is about is that it's it, really Christians use this word to explain a profound religious experience, a profound uh, epiphany, a, a profound eureka. It's like, ah, oh, now I understand. That's what a mountaintop experience is. But let me give you an, an illustration that really gets at how those are just how is it's a good thing to appreciate these moments, but it's actually a very d- bad thing to really shape our lives around them. So here's an example. Um, it's really a silly example. I was a junior in high school, and my class just went to Kennywood, uh, which is a, a amusement park. If you're from Pittsburgh, you know Kennywood. You went there like 20 times a summer. But it's an amusement park and roller coasters. And like the day ended, we get on the bus. We're going back to school. And I just remember thinking to myself, man, what an awesome day. This was really enjoyable. Like I really enjoyed our friend, my friends. Like I witnessed two friends. That was their first date. Now they have, they're married and they have kids. And so I, like it was a really important day for some people in my, in my class. But I just remember thinking, I wish this could last forever. Like, all of a sudden, if you just take one experience and, like, you just want to, like, like hit pause and just freeze your life then and there, like, that's actually not a healthy way to live life. And what Christians often do is that we, that's how we really just shape our, our life with God is where we seek high, like, profound experience, profound experience, profound experience. We seek those profound experiences all the time. But when we do that, we 
miss out on the importance. We miss out on God working in the ordinary and the everyday nature of our lives. And that's actually where Peter is. And Peter is, is forgetting something here. He's forgetting that God doesn't save us out of the world. God doesn't save us out of the world. Salvation is not really an escape from this world at all. Salvation is actually an ongoing story and process where we are actually saved in this world. Like the way that we are saved out of the world is when God comes to us, where he initiates life with us, where he gives us a new heart, where he, t- he removes the world's ways out of our heart and out of our lives and gives us a new way of living. But he keeps us in this world to tell his story. And one writer, uh, Tish Harrison Warren, this is in her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary. It's a fantastic book. This is what, how she put it. She said, I was and remain a Christian who longs for revolution, for things to be made new and whole in beautiful and big ways. But what I am slowly seeing is that you cannot get to the revolution without learning to do the dishes. The kind of spiritual life and disciplines needed to sustain the Christian life are quiet, repetitive, and ordinary. It is in the dailiness of the Christian life that God's transformation takes root and grows. You see, in order for us to continue God's work in our lives, in order for us to to see what God is working in our life, we have to pause and listen to him. And this is the third part of the story I want to consider now. Because on the basis of who Jesus is, God says, listen to him. We hear God say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And the point is, is that the Christian life is one of listening, where we as followers of Jesus listen to him. And so the the foundation, the reason why we have to listen to Jesus is because he is God the Son. He is the one whom holds the entire universe in his hands. He's the one who died upon the cross for your sins. He's the one who rescued you. Like, that's why we have to listen to him. But what is he actually saying? What is Jesus actually teaching? And when we look at the entire Gospels, when we look at all these biographies about Jesus, we see that Jesus is teaching us about life with God. He's teaching us about eternal life. That through him, that we can have a full, complete life with God. We can have access to God through Jesus And every single Sunday, we rehearse, we put ourselves into the story. We rehearse the incredible news that Jesus reconciles us to God, that he reconciles us to one another, that he reconciles us to our possessions. And this freedom is only possible when we have personal knowledge of God. We are liberated when we know God. But knowing God is actually more than personally knowing him. Knowing God means knowing his word, knowing his will, knowing his agenda, knowing his ways. It means that, that when we say we know God, it actually means we have access to God's knowledge. And in our text today, we see that God gives Jesus the authority. He gives him the right to give this personal knowledge of God to us. We see that Moses and Elijah, we see the law and the prophets beside Jesus saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so Jesus gives us personal knowledge of God by speaking the word of prophets to us. And so what all this means for us is that it's not enough for us to know God personally. 
Let me rephrase that. Knowing God means more than just acknowledging God. Knowing God actually means knowing his word. And Jesus is the full embodiment of God's word. So we must look to him and to him alone, and we have to listen to him. But what does this look like? What does it look like for us to listen to God? And this is where we need to admit that culturally, we are a very distracted people. I know I am. Like, if you come over, seriously, any day, pick a day, just come on over to our house, and this will be a moment that you witness inside our, our house. I'll be, I'll be there, like, looking at my phone, and Jennifer will say something, and, like, literally, 10 seconds later, I'll be like, wait, what'd you say? Like, that's a, mo- that's a picture of all our lives. We are distracted. We truly are. And so we actually need to admit this, and we actually need to say that, well, let me back up. What, we are distracted, and it's actually very normal for us to actually want to blame. Well, it's the, the phone. It's the person texting me. It's this. It's that. Or it's like you picked an, an opportune moment to talk, have a conversation. The truth is, it's actually something going on in our hearts, that we are distracted in our hearts. And so what we need to do is to take some intentionality. We need to... It's not just take intentionality, be intentional. We actually have to cultivate awareness that we are truly a distracted people. And we need to intentionally create moments in our day where we actually receive God's word. It could mean waking up a few minutes early and to read scripture. It could actually mean going to bed earlier so that you can have some time just to between just for yourself and God. It could But where you perhaps spend money on downloaded Bible audio apps so that when you're driving to work or or commuting to work, you're listening to God's word. See, we actually have to take time and reclaim time to listen to God's word. But this also, so that's one thing. That's what listening to God looks like in one way. But another thing is that it's not just enough for us to say, uh, to really acknowledge that God is speaking to us. See, this text right here is actually a command. This is my son. Listen to him. It's not enough for us to just acknowledge that God's speaking. We actually have to listen to him. We have to give ourselves to his story and actually hear and heed his word. Because what God is actually telling us to do here is he's actually telling us to obey his his son. And obedience throughout the entirety of God's story is deeply connected to a response of gratitude. See, God told his people, like back in the Exodus, God told his people after rescuing them from slavery, he says, love the, the, uh, those who sojourn in your lands, love the refugees, and do not own slaves. And so similarly, uh, Jesus has died upon the cross for our sins, and he says, pick up your cross and follow me. The point that, that I'm making is that we need to hear, listen, and then act upon Jesus' voice in our lives. We must obey him. And if I can use Charlie Peacock once again, what God has done for you, this is how he put it, what God has done for you, now go do for others. You see, obedience is what sustains our life with God. It sustains our life with one another. It sustains our life in this world. Obedience is actually love in practice. So let me return to uh, Sean's story that I opened with. 
So after uh, Sean's friends intervened, after his church pursued discipline, he ran away. He moved away to a different town, and there, uh, surprisingly, he goes to a new church. And this church was different than the one he was, at, he was a part of before. God's word was faithfully preached, and the culture, the ethos of that church was just different. He was, people were treating him with compassion and care, and after being there for like six months, during the communion uh, time of the supper, he, uh, the service, he just broke down crying, weeping, because he had this profound awareness that God was his father pursuing him. The gospel sank into his heart. He never thought he would see three days sober. He never thought he would see six months sober. He never thought he would see a year where he was freed from his addiction because he was always trying to change himself, leaning on his, his own power. But he actually found freedom when he surrendered, when he listened to Jesus. And he, when in, that, in that moment, when he listened to Jesus, when he heard God's word speak into his life, he was transformed. You see, friends, when we listen to Jesus, when we allow God to speak into our life, then you will be transformed. You will be changed. You will become the person whom God has always meant you to be. That You'll become the person whom God has created you to be. And it's in and only through Jesus Christ. Let's pray.